This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to the second in our month of Best Picture winners with Gentleman's Agreement from 1947, directed by Elia Kazan, written by Moss Hart, starring Gregory Peck, Celeste Holm, and Dean Stockwell. This movie was nominated for eight Academy Awards and won three, including Best Picture. So, Dad, this was your choice for the 1940s. We've already discussed one Best Picture winner twice from that decade in Casablanca. But what made you choose this particular movie? Well, I just thought it was a very good movie this time I saw it. And it is extremely poignant yet even today. And it had been a while since I'd seen it, so I thought it would be a great film to revisit for myself personally. And uh, I was not disappointed in my rewatch. I know that you had made comment of this because I only recently saw this for the first time when I was finally finishing up my Best Picture winners list, my personal accomplishment list to watch every Best Picture winner. This was one of the last ones that I had to complete. And it's just not a movie that seemingly is available in most places. It's rarely on TCM. Despite being a 20th Century Fox film, it's not really on streaming anywhere. And you have to kind of rent this or maybe even seek it out in order to really find it anywhere. I think we watched it or rented it on Prime the other night in order to see it. But you had made comment that you had seen this years prior. Correct. Back when I was in law school, I used to work for a law firm, and over the the 11.30 to 12.30 hour, a lot of times while I was having lunch at my desk, they had a show on Wisconsin Public Radio I'd listen to called Chapter a Day, and they were reading Laurence Olivier's biography, or autobiography, and he talked about his relationship with Ely Kazan and talked about Kazan and this film. So I was familiar with this film from that. When I would go in and we first got AMC and they were still showing old movies and then Turner, I would record movies or off of WGN, which had a lot of movies. And uh, your mother and I would watch them when we were dirt poor, (laughs) just starting out and couldn't afford to really do much of anything else. And so I watched this film. Well, probably when the first year we were married, maybe the maybe the first year we actually lived in the same house, which would have been the second year we were married. And I guess, is it what you remembered it to be? It was better than what I remembered. I think I have seen so much go on right now in society that this uh, speaks more to me now uh, as a 58-year-old man than it did when I was, say, a 25 or 26-year-old man, unfortunately. I found that it is somewhat timely, even though the subject of maybe Jewish racism, anti-Semitism, as noted in the film, isn't as 
timely to the modern setting as it was in 1947, just coming off of World War II and the Holocaust, it's still present, even though it's not something when we talk about racism as being front and center. More or less, we're usually, especially in America, referring to African Americans or those of an ethnic descent that you're talking about brown or black people primarily. Yes. But there still is a significant amount of anti-Semitism. All you have to do is watch or read anything about the Proud Boys, um, some of the neo-Nazis. The Ku Klux Klan is still actively anti-Jewish and still unfortunately functioning. So it's not gone. It's just maybe not as overt as it used to be because there's been more integration. I think at this point, when I was a kid, I knew one, well, I knew two people who were Jewish. They lived in, or I went to high school with with a, a, a guy and his younger brother. I was in the high school musical with his younger brother. They were the only Jews I knew. I didn't think anything of it. Didn't make any difference to me because didn't they? They just had a different religion as far as I was concerned. But when you get into other areas where there are more, and look at the segregation that took place in places like Chicago, which I spent my freshman year of college, got to see a lot of that going on, and then talking with the uh, Jewish community within Beloit College, where I was, uh, uh, I spent my sophomore through senior years. And uh, there, there was a large portion or a large population of Jews. We actually had kosher meals. And that's where I was integrated to everything from lox and bagels to uh, gavilta fish and all of that stuff, because it was available and I'd always try it. So, and they explained to me that there was this, and, and the reason this is called gentleman's agreement, it wasn't something that there wasn't the Jim Crow laws in place like there was for blacks in the South and even in the North, it was more, you just didn't let certain things take place. You just knew that you couldn't. And in fact, I mean, there was a real schism within Hollywood. Most of the uh, big stars couldn't join the Beverly Hills Country Club. So they ended up forming their own units and the, the lunches would be, you know, Jack Benny and Groucho and Harpo Marx, George Burns, Tony Randall, um, a whole, or John Garfield, I think, even may have attended the, some of those luncheons when he was younger. And it was the Jewish community. And in fact, that's why Groucho's famous line about never joining a club that would have me as a member took place, because it was a way to stick his thumb in the Beverly Hills Country Club's eye for having rejected him for 40 years. So I guess the question would be is if this film is still relevant, and it sounds like you would say it is. Yes, I think so. Because that's the subtlety of the of the movie. The message is not racism per se or sexism or uh, anti-Semitism. It's the insidiousness of saying nothing and doing nothing. When people behave like this, just clam up. You don't, you don't re react. You don't tell them they're wrong. You don't walk out. You don't do all that. It's the, it's the subtlety. It's the, it's an acquiescence to it. That's what this film really gets to. 
is that when everybody fails to stand up, that's when this becomes rooted. Well, I really boiled this down to two, I guess, quotes that I will somewhat paraphrase here. One being from another Gregory Peck film that is famous on its own, but I think more famous as the book being To Kill a Mockingbird. You don't know what somebody's perspective is until you walk a mile in their shoes. I think he's really living that through the character of Philip Schuyler Green in this movie. And I think that gives a different perspective than had it been someone who truly was Jewish getting the presentation of what a day was like in their eyes, because it puts us in the place of, okay, what if you were actually Jewish? It gives us the background as an audience who really has no other way to get inside that culture or, I guess, worldview than to take somebody who seemingly is a stand-in for the audience, like a Gregory Peck, and putting him into the level of, okay, now you get to be subjected to everything else that they're going through. And I know we're going to talk about that as a complicated nature, whether it was appropriate for this movie to focus on being the perspective of a, for lack of a better term, wasp playing a Jew, as opposed to focusing on a Jewish man and what he has to go through from a regular day and day perspective. So the other one being, what is the world when good men do nothing? And I think that gets back to the point that you were making just before this, that realistically, racism or prejudice only survives on the backing of people not being active in trying to prevent it. I agree. I think that I think that's really the underlying point of the movie because everybody has seen racism in some variety. I mean it Well, it's easy to spot overt racism. And even this film goes to certain lengths. Let's take for example the Dave Goldman scene where he's in the restaurant and the guy asks him his name, spots him out and then calls him a slur within the restaurant. That's an easy form of racism. It's all the other smaller, subtler things that go on that are insidious that this really takes to bear. Correct. It's the having the party and then everybody finds out he's Jewish and then suddenly they have other things that they have to do that night and can't attend. Well, or even to the hiring practices of the liberal newspaper that's contracted him to be a writer on the topic of anti-Semitism. Correct. So I guess let's fill in the audience a little bit more with some background on the film, starting with a plot summary. Do you have one ready for us? Yes. Philip Schuyler Green, Gregory Peck, is a widowed journalist who has just moved to New York City with his son, Tommy, Dean Stockwell, and his mother, Anne Revere. His new employer, a magazine publisher, asks him to do a story on anti-Semitism. Looking for a new angle for the story, Green decides to tell everyone he's Jewish. Meanwhile, Green meets his boss's niece, Kathy Lacey, Dorothy McGuire, who agrees to help Green in his deception. Green starts to experience strange behavior, apprehension, and overt discrimination. And when his old friend Dave Goldman, John Garfield, a Jew himself, attempts to move to New York. Goldman helps Green negotiate the world of prejudice. Nevertheless, it is not as rosy a picture for Green 
as you might have found in other magazines. Thank you. Cast for this movie, Elia Kazan as director, Moss Hart as writer, Gregory Peck as Philip Schuyler Green, Anne Revere as Mrs. Green, Dorothy McGuire as Kathy Lacey, June Havoc as Elaine Wales, John Garfield as Dave Goldman, Albert Decker as John Menifee, Celeste Holm as Anne Detry, Jane Wyatt as Jane, and Dean Stockwell as Tommy Green. Recognition for this movie, based on Laura Z. Hobson's best-selling 1947 novel of the same title, Gentleman's Agreement was released on November 11, 1947. The movie was an unexpected hit at the box office. According to Variety, it earned $3.9 million in rentals in the U.S. in 1948. For its budget of $1.985 million, the film earned roughly $7.8 million in the U.S. and was the number seven movie of that year. Gentleman's Agreement currently holds a 76% on Rotten Tomatoes among critics. Gentleman's Agreement garnered eight Oscar nominations for Best Actor, Gregory Peck, Actress, Dorothy McGuire, Supporting Actress for Anne Revere, Screenplay for Moss Hart, and Film Editing winning three Oscars for Best Picture, Director for Elia Kazan, and Supporting Actress for Celeste Holm. The political nature of the film, however, upset the House Un-American Activities Committee, with Elia Kazan, Daryl Zanuck, John Garfield, and Anne Revere all being called to testify before the committee. Revere refused to testify, and although Garfield appeared, he refused to, quote, name names. Both were placed in the red channels of the Hollywood blacklist, Garfield remained on the blacklist for a year, but was called again to testify against his wife, and in the interim died of a heart attack at the age of 39 before his second hearing date. It was believed that the stress of these experiences led to the heart attack that killed him at the age of 39. In 2017, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. Did you know? The role of Philip Green was first offered to Cary Grant, but he turned it down. Grant refused the role because he contended he was Jewish and thought he looked Jewish. He maintained, the public won't believe my portrayal of a Gentile trying to pass himself off as a Jew. Did you know? Gregory Peck did not get along with Elia Kazan. Kazan told the press he was very disappointed with Peck's performance and the two men never worked together again. Did you know? Despite winning an Oscar for his direction, Elia Kazan revealed in a later interview that he was never fond of this movie, feeling that it lacked passion on his part and he thought that the romance was too forced. Did you know? Gregory Peck later said regarding this film, We felt we were brave pioneers exploring anti-Semitism in the United States. Today it seems a little dated. Did you know? The timeliness of the film is revealed by a telling exchange that took place between screenwriter Moss Hart and a stagehand, as reported in the Saturday Review from December 6, 1947, on page 71. You know a stagehand is reported to have said to Mr. Hart, I've loved working on this picture of yours. Usually I play gin rummy with the boys when scenes are being shot, but not this time. This time I couldn't leave the set. The picture has such a wonderful moral, I didn't want to miss it. Really, beamed Mr. Hart, pleased not only as a scenerist, but as a reformer. That's fine. What's the moral as you see it? Well, I tell you, replied the stagehand, henceforth I'm always going to be good to Jewish people, because you never can tell when they will turn out to be Gentiles. 
Uh, yeah, okay. Uh. Did you know? John Garfield accepted the role after producer Daryl F. Zanuck promised that the film would be faithful to Moss Hart's script. Despite his limited role, Garfield was paid a full star salary. With that, we'll take our first break and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we'll be continuing our month of Best Picture winners with a musical biopic from the 1980s. From 1984, it's Amadeus, directed by Milos Forman, written by Peter Schaefer, and starring F. Murray Abraham, Tom Hulsey, and Elizabeth Barrage. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. It's Hulse. Okay. He was in one of your favorite movies, Animal House. Mm. Okay, no wonder I don't know how to pronounce his name. <laughs> so then let's jump to best performance. Who do you have down, Dad? <sighs> it was kind of tough. I liked Gregory Peck's. I, I don't I don't believe Eli Kazan's assessment was that poignant or on point with Gregory Peck. I liked his performance. I don't know if it's his best performance. I also had John Garfield, who I thought was fantastic in this film. So it was kind of, to me, 1 and 1A, because I thought both of them carried a significant role. Even though John Garfield was in the film for only a portion of it, I thought his scenes were extremely impactful and carried a lot of weight. So this was the only film that year that had a Best Picture nomination and a Best Actor nomination. It also was the only film that year to have a Best Picture nomination, a Best Actor nomination, and a Best Actress nomination. And I thought that for the difficulty of what that part entailed, because to me, as much as we like to put ourselves in Gregory Peck's shoes, Really, the audience character is actually that of Kathy. And so for the difficulty of playing that convincingly while also being sympathetic, I gave my best performance to Dorothy McGuire. The stretches where she has to go for whole swaths of this movie as being seemingly somebody who you really don't believe is truly racist but still seems to try and look the other way or make excuses about some of the things that are going on or the ways that she doesn't want to be off-putting to the people who are the racists makes her somewhat endearing and yet understandable, relatable. And the fact that you don't come to despise her by the end of the movie, as at times Gregory Peck does, I think is a note to how well she performs this role in that by the end of it, you do want them to make up because you understand how much she is trying, but is caught up in a system that really rewards people for looking the other way. Who did you have for secondary? So for secondary, I had Peck down and I think his righteous indignation, there's a very difficult tone to strike between, again, being so forceful that you become either a caricature or you become off-putting to the audience. I think because you wanted this film to not only be seen by all the good-natured non-racists 
beyond the people who were actually doing something and try and motivate them to action. You had to present this as we're not criticizing you, but we're trying to give you a, a nudge in the right direction that you need to take action if you want something to change. And this character, I think part of it has to do with the writing, but also the original writing from the book. So that could have played a significant role, but Peck could have very easily taken this to a level of non-righteous anger and just pure rage that I think could have been easy for most actors, but he seems to strike that tone well. And you also see that in some of his other work, like at the end of Roman Holiday or in To Kill a Mockingbird when he's playing Atticus Finch. So I think this was always a role that he was right to play. And I think there's it's a reason that he kind of came back to similar roles later on in his career. I, I like your comment because I, I do agree. I think there is a certain aspect. And one of my favorite uh, Gregory Peck roles was as Douglas MacArthur in MacArthur that was based on a biography that was done. I'm drawing a blank. It's oh, uh, Manchester, William Manchester. And Gregory Peck could have very easily went over the top because MacArthur could almost be a caricature of himself. But again, Gregory Peck just had some knack for being able to underplay and yet be convincing in doing it. Well, I think that you want to balance the character. You can't be soft either. I think it very easily could have been a soft-pedaled performance in the wrong hands. But I think that it's either somebody who doesn't think this is a problem or somebody who thinks this is so much of a problem they go on a personal crusade. That's not really this character. This is supposed to point out and show us our inaction and push us in the right direction without making us seemingly either angry at ourselves or going through some ritual sacrifice of self-abuse, of guilt, that we haven't done these things. It's a very difficult tone to strike, and that's why I think that a lot of this probably has to do with the writing, but also in how he strikes his tone. He's firm, but he's not necessarily angry or preachy at times. And he gets close in a couple of spots, but it's really that balancing act. And as such, I thought his performance was necessary to strike the right balance in the film. My best secondary performance was Celeste Holmes. The thing that came across to me was how... She's the one character within the film that was not on the inside of the, uh, the deception. She's the one character who did not seem to change her ability or her interaction with Gregory Peck's character. It made no difference to her. And it, you know, yeah, you could see the look of surprise, but... It's the one character that I saw that it made no actual difference in how she played it and how she figured out how to play it identical with the shift was probably why she won the our best uh, supporting actress award. See, for me, I've always struggled with her getting it over some of her co-stars. She notably won best supporting actress over the mother, who I actually thought was a much stronger character just because of how supportive she was to her son, but also 
you could see where he got his good values from by using that type of character. And so I'd always wondered why Holm specifically was given the, the award, particularly because I questioned some of the motivation of her character. She's supposedly a fashion writer, and sure, she's at a liberal magazine. But I guess I don't understand. She makes a clear play for Green's character and trying to be the romantic interest once he's broken up with Kathy near the end of the film. And yet she's also really oddly chummy with hanging out with uh, Dave Goldman while he's visiting New York. And so I don't know if there was some questions that you would have to ask. I, I guess I could bring that around and give a couple of remaining questions early, such as what is an a single woman hanging out with a married man on the town in New York in 1947? What I guess what's going on there, really? <laughs> Yeah, well, different times, I guess. But I guess the character works differently for you, so... Yeah. What did you have for most charismatic? This is where I had John Garfield. I think he provides a really warm and friendly perspective from the Jewish side of you. You really needed to have that character that grounded everything and gave you the, oh yeah, this is what we go through every day type of view without necessarily feeling like a victim. I don't think this would have come across as well as it can at times, especially for me, how I took the film, without him not necessarily acting like a victim. In fact, he goes so far on the opposite direction to say, is this something that you really want to do? I'd just as soon have you leave this subject alone. Let us handle it privately do things in our own manner so that it is not to stir up the hornet's nest point of view. And I think that his warmness, his understanding, his almost all-knowing perspective on this strikes the right chord in the movie exactly when you need it because Phil Green is struggling with the early throes of what he's experiencing from the prejudice of it all. And so by bringing in that character, it really strikes a lighter hearted note, even though it immediately follows a scene where there's the first real instance of overt racism in the restaurant. And I think that if you really want the best example I can give you for how charismatic he was and how extraordinary he was in this role, it goes to what I think is probably the pivotal scene of the movie with him and Kathy in the bar at the end of the movie, where he is just so utterly gentle, but he strikes the right notes and asks the exact right questions when it needs to be. And I won't necessarily ruin that scene ahead of time here, as that's going to come up in a few minutes. But I think that he is exactly the right type of character and the right actor for that role in this moment. My uh, most charismatic is I had, I had Dorothy McGuire simply because she had an ability on screen to draw you towards her and to be sympathetic. And I think everybody on, or in, the, in the film, or I'm mean, excuse me, in the theater would have related to her, both men and women in some way, because they're going to be put in a position where they're going to remember somebody, you know, sitting around the, the gas station 
uh, with a soda or at the at the local bar over beer, and somebody's going to have made a racist joke, and they're going to think, oh, yeah, I didn't say anything. And you're going to feel that regret. And that conveys so closely through her character and her almost vulnerability that I think it really kind of really set her up as being kind of the the pulse of the film. And so I thought that it took a very charismatic actress to do that and to pull it off so that you could relate to her, even though she's constantly pointed out that she's flawed and wrong. I think the beauty of this, and we've mentioned it now a few different times, is that she is the stand-in for the exact audience that they're trying to hit with this movie. It's the good people who do nothing, and it's encapsulized in the very scene that I mentioned at the end. Because she wants to think of herself as good and righteous, and that she suggested this piece, so she's taking action and moving things along. But when it really comes down to it, and you're presented with that moment where you actually could do something, make even the small, slightest change that could make a movement or push somebody else out, make them necessarily feel the discrimination that they're trying to pass on to others. I think that's where this movie is different. And her journey becomes much of the same one of our own. It's a lot of good people who have done nothing or who haven't been pushed to the point of action or maybe don't even realize that they've had opportunities to necessarily get to that point and okay here are what the opportunities are that you can be presented and here are the ways in which you can even make small changes in your own life that can really move the ball forward and as i mentioned before with nominating her for my best performance i thought she did a good performance by really becoming that sympathetic vulnerable was a good word that you used person as the stand-in for us where we can be sympathetic to her because we're going through that struggle ourselves. There's a certain element of this where it is involved, where it's a lack of understanding that you just don't realize what it is until it's pointed out to you. So then let's move to best scene. I uh, had a little bit of struggle trying to define certain scenes, and I really don't think that this movie takes off with some of its best work until maybe about, I would say, a half hour, 45 minutes into this. So the first one I will take is when he finally gets the angle for his story. So Phil gets the angle. The second one being his new secretary, when he has kind of the first interaction with his new secretary and experiences or hears her story of how she even got the job. When we finally get Dave Goldman in, that would be the third nominee, Flume in, Engagement Party, Engagement Broken, which is the scene where Kathy and Phil break it off because they have such difficulty in him pushing her to try and give up her house, her not necessarily wanting to upset people and make waves necessarily. Then I was Jewish for eight weeks, the story actually coming out and the reaction within the newspaper or excuse me, the magazine itself. Anne makes her move, which is that scene at the end of the movie where she's really discussing things with Phil and tries to, I guess, I'm not really sure about that one, but we can get into that if you want to. 
And then finally, the scene I discussed before, Dave shows Kathy the subtleties of racism. So then, what is the best scene out of these? I think for me, it's the scene I already mentioned before. Yeah, it is Dave and Kathy. I mean, just the fact that he's able to continue, and what did you do? And what did you do? I mean, it just, it really emphasizes that inaction is as bad as the action. Well, because it allows it to persist. Yes. It's not stamping out the root when you've had a chance, because the further it, it, it allows it to fester, the bigger it potentially becomes. And it's also my favorite scene of that, because Same. he takes... Again, a gentleness to the situation instead of just rebuking her ad nauseum. I mean, he could have over that, but he just, it feels like he is so understanding of everything that's going on. And he realizes in this moment, there's a teaching lesson. So many of us would have taken her to the woodshed for, okay, you didn't do anything about it. And then it puts her on the defensive. In this, because of his kindness, it really makes a shift where she's really able to make a action that is different, which we see at the end of the film. And I think it, it really becomes the, I would say kind of the climax more or less other than him calling his wife and saying that they're moving to New York. Yeah. Is this your favorite or did you have a different favorite scene? No, it's my favorite too. Okay. Most indelible for you. I have the reveal simply because it just showed how, you, you didn't see people even within the magazine or people he was having contact with who were treating him differently. You couldn't perceive it until you could. <laughs> and then you realized the distinction and how things shifted. And to me, that spoke volumes. For me, and I didn't really have a, a really great indelible moment, but Phil and Kathy making up, especially like right in the doorway because it happens three times, might as well be the most indelible thing about this movie. <laughs> yeah. I almost wonder if it would have been better if it hadn't. That ultimately it says that racism can destroy relationships. Yeah, I guess I hadn't necessarily thought that far ahead. I think it's the, the thing that has to happen, but because it's the last 30 seconds of the movie. It, it feels almost like a throwaway by the time you get done with Dave calling up his boss and then calling up his wife. Yeah. After that, uh, everything would be anticlimactic, but it is what it is. Yes. All right, we'll go for our second break here, and we'll be right back. Another quick note before we get back to the show. You can now visit the new RonnieDuncanStudios.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Gmode Podcast, or find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast in order to engage with the show. We'd really love to hear from you. And as always, please follow, like, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. We would really appreciate it. All right, Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, unfortunately. Peter Brook, uh, 97, he was an English theater and film director. Uh, he did the uh, film Lord of the Flies. It was a book that I had read in high school. He had directed that. Uh, he had won a Tony uh, in 1966 and 1971 as well. 
Uh, and then Joe Turkle, uh, an American actor, long-time character actor. He was in The Shining, Blade Runner, and Paths of Glory. If you happen to look at his photo, you'd go, oh, that guy. Long career and uh, very successful as a character actor. So I happened to come across his obituary over the weekend, and I believe he was the bartender in The Shining. I don't remember what his character was in Blade Runner, but I think he was also mentioned as one of the attorneys in Paths of Glory. Obviously a very storied career, and I guess if we have to put it this way, the fact that both men were in their 90s says that they probably had long and good careers uh, and lives that they've been able to contribute quite a lot. It's a lot less sad than, I guess, I mean, for discussing a death, but uh, than some of the younger people that we've had on the list recently. So a couple of guys to more celebrate than to look at as the tragedy of what could have been with their lives. And we thank them both for their contributions here with a moment of silence in their honor. Thank you. Best funniest lines. There really aren't any funny lines per se in this movie. It's no. It's a bit heavier. I think there might be one or two small ones where it's just kind of some naivete, particularly when discussing things with his son, Tommy. But outside of that, I only had three that I wrote down that I thought were really good and honest, even though I think overall the dialogue of this film is pretty good. My first one up, Kathy and Phil. Kathy, you think I'm an anti-Semite. Phil, no, I don't. But I've come to see lots of nice people who hate it and deplore it and protest their own innocence, then help it along and wonder why it grows. People who would never beat up a Jew. People who think anti-Semitism is far away in some dark place with low-class morons. That's the biggest discovery I've made. The good people. The nice people. I didn't have too many myself, but Kathy, you can't help that you were born Christian instead of Jewish. It doesn't mean you're glad you were, but I'm glad. There, I said it. Mrs. Green after the magazine article comes out. You know something, Phil? I suddenly want to live to be very old. Very. I want to be around to see what happens. The world is stirring in very strange ways. Maybe this is the century for it. Maybe that's why it's so troubled. Other centuries had their driving forces. What will ours have been when men look back? Maybe it won't be the American century after all, or the Russian century or the atomic century. Wouldn't it be wonderful if it turned out to be everybody's century when people all over the world, free people, found a way to live together? I'd like to be around to see some of that, even the beginning. I may stick around for quite a while. And then the last one I had was, you can't make over the whole world. You know I'm on Dave's side. That's from Kathy. Phil, well, I'm not on Dave's side or any side except against their side. My last one is also from Kathy. I love this house deeply, and I started to build it when things first began to go wrong between Bill and me, and somehow it became a symbol to me of many things. Sometimes, when you're troubled and hurt, you pour yourself into things that can't hurt back. All right, let's go to the Stanley rubric. Legacy is up first. First or second, Pop? Well, go ahead. So... Unfortunately, as much as I enjoyed this film, watching it twice probably in the last six months, I really don't see this as having a huge legacy. 
within the industry, it's relatively forgotten film. And if it's forgotten within the industry, it's definitely forgotten by the audience at large. I think that some people are easily able to overlook this movie, particularly from a Hollywood or industry or perspective, just because of how influential the Jewish community is. And I, I know we make a lot of fun and there are easy jokes to make that everybody's agent is Jewish or everybody's stage producer or whatever, that they're all the ones running the strings behind everything in Hollywood. And that's been a joke going back as far as probably this. The problem with that is that we're still, and we've discussed it early on, that even the really overt signs of racism a few years ago, like we want to talk about Charlottesville with the tiki torches and the march to not tear down a Confederate statue, chanting things that were anti-Semitic coming from the Holocaust. It's not like it's that far removed. And yes, we don't have the immediate examples at every place and time at the crisp tip of our fingertips, but it's there. So as much as this film might have lost a little relevancy because it doesn't feel as present in our lives as other forms of racism, it's still there. And I wish this had a better legacy overall, but I just don't see this on anybody's like most important list. I think that this is notable for the fact that uh, it's one of the few Best Picture winners from after about 1940 that doesn't make a lot of a thousand and one movies to see before you die books. And to me, that says that this has got to probably be a lower score. So I think the industry remembers it a little bit for movie buffs, but because it's not really ever on or shown in places like TCM, I think it still gets a lower score. So I'll split the difference and go with a 2.5 there. And I really feel like I have to give it a one for an audience because if the industry doesn't know it and isn't supporting it and isn't promoting something like this that I still do think has relevancy, I find it very difficult for the audience at large to really know anything about this movie. And other than Gregory Peck being in it, there aren't a lot of other major notable stars that anybody can really just point to and say, I have a connection with this person that they do with Casablanca or with Humphrey Bogart because Hollywood has promoted those as the timeless classic stars. And so I went with a 3.5 overall, 2.5 for industry and one for audience. I can't argue with your logic. I went a little bit different. I have the public as a 1.5. And the only reason I'm giving it a 1.5 is because it's one of these films, right? Because I would I tell people that I'm, you know, that I'm in contact with family, friends, etc. What the film is, no one's heard of it. Okay, no one has heard of it. And then you tell them what it's about, and they go, "Wow, that's really interesting." So <laughs> it has a connection today because of the subject matter, and that leads me to the second one, which is the industry, which I can't understand why this film is not considered better or promoted more within the film industry because i've always talked about the possibility because i'm on my local school board uh we did this at bully college we had what was called saturday morning scholars 
it's where community people would come in and they teach a class more of interest or fun to help broaden students' knowledge of the world and of culture. And I always thought this would be a great opportunity in a in a public school is to offer such thing for students to come in and make them more rounded. Because we're getting to a point where some kids will never get to college and experience certain things, but they still should be exposed to things that they would not normally see within their families, their circle of friends, within their local community, within the trade school or whatever area of training they undertake. This would be a film that I would say we're going to have 10 films we're going to watch that have the most to say about the United States or about the world today. This would be on my list. So I can't understand that. So I have for the or for Legacy a two because it does appear on a few lists. Not as many as I would like, but it's on a few lists. It has been preserved. But the public, I'm going to go with 1.5. So I'm going 3.5 for that. And since uh, you went first, I'll go right to impact and significance. This is much different within the time frame because it was the number seven film. It was a surprise hit. No one thought it would make money. It made quite a bit of money. And the critics all loved it. It had tons of nominations uh, and won Best Picture. So industry, I went with a 4.5. And the public, I went with a 4 for a 8.5 for impact and significance. I don't think you gave your total score on the last category. It was a 2 and a 1.5, so it's 3.5. Okay. So the average between us on that category is a 3.5. So if I may, before I get my to my own version of impact significance, uh, just reflect on what you made there, which was a similar comment I made a few weeks back with our Judgment at Nuremberg episode, where I thought that could be a very easy teaching model movie for a lot of high school history classrooms. To me, this film is a lot more subtle and less easily digestible unless you have either a certain knowledge base or lived experience. And so because I think this is for a very particular audience that doesn't think of itself as racist, I don't know if it has the same impact for a high school classroom as it would for maybe a college classroom where you've had to be in and around a lot of different sorts of people. Like if you show this in a Port Edwards classroom, I think it would go over their heads just because they're not mixed in in our very small bedroom community in central Wisconsin with a lot of different ethnic groups, religions people that we're forced to interact with in the same way that you would be in maybe college. And so I would just say that maybe the entrance age for watching something like this might be a little bit higher, where this is a film appreciation course class, as opposed to something maybe for a high school classroom. I'm just going to, as long as we're bringing it up and we're talking about this, instead of waiting to the remaining questions, I'm just going to say it now, which is you should almost watch this film immediately after you've watched Judgment at Nuremberg, which we've done earlier this year, because most of Judgment at Nuremberg is us thumping our chests about how horrible the Nazis are, and it's so obvious that you just can't follow orders. And then this brings out the fact that we're not that far off. 
that there was a lot going on internally within the United States that wasn't that different. It's just Nazi Germany went way beyond where we where it started, which was anti-Semitism. And that's the course that can easily be followed at any moment in time out of either necessity or out of, I guess, to some extent, just by not saying no. You know, you have a group of very radical people who want to uh, take that racism or that anti-Semitism to a new height. And by not saying no, because, well, yeah, okay, I don't agree with that. But, you know, they are really making things work better economically. It's almost a dichotomy where you're looking at it where one film kind of portrays us as being kind of thumping our chests about how, you know, we're self-righteous about dealing with this. And then the other film shows this is really kind of the unspoken stuff that really goes on. Well, I think that's being a little bit unfair of judgment at Nuremberg because they do point out that a lot of similar laws to the Nazis were in effect, but we can direct you to that episode that we did, I think about a month, maybe six weeks ago for our discussion on that. I don't want to go too broadly. That being said, I do think that is an astute suggestion to maybe pair the films because I think that in tandem, they'd have a lot bigger impact. What'd you have for novelty? I didn't give impact significance yet. Oh, sorry. My mistake. Continue that. In some ways, this could be stated as a launching point for both Gregory Peck and Elia Kazan's careers, as this was only their second major success of either of their careers. I believe that the first Gregory Peck movie of any notoriety was a Alfred Hitchcock film from about 1945 that I'm drawing a blank on the name for the moment. And Kazan Spellbound. Spellbound, thank you. And Kazan only had one other commercially successful film that I've heard of before this. However, both of them go on to, even though they didn't work together again and apparently had some friction, I guess noted Gregory Peck had friction with just about everybody on this film from what I read. They still went on to have fairly significant careers for at least the next seven, eight, nine years. And in the immediate impact as well, as you mentioned, this is a eight-time Academy Award-nominated film. You had a bunch of different acting performances, the screenplay, the film editing, and it won Best Picture, Director, etc. So it's hard for me to go too far down on the industry side of view, but I also think the backlash before, during, and after the production, even within the industry itself, leads me to not necessarily subtract points or punish the movie, but I just do think that this had its detractors and wasn't necessarily as supported by the film itself. Then you also think about the impact immediately following where the industry started to eat itself because of what was going on with the House Un-American Activities Committee. It came to define multiple people's careers and, for that matter, John Garfield's life. Kazan is pretty much made his legacy or his career on the back of he was called before the HUAC committee for this film and ended up quote unquote naming names. And so as a result, I, I don't want to punish the film itself, but it's made differently because of its central figures and the people who made it and how they reacted to the film before, during and afterward. 
So I went with a 3.5 for industry and the audience supported this movie. I think the audience reaction and the fact that this was actually fairly popular in the South, very similar in reaction to a movie we discussed in February, I think this year with mom for guess who's coming to dinner that I think the audience actually supported this a lot more than those inside the industry. So I went with a 4.5 for that for an eight overall combined with your 8.5 as an 8.25 average between us. Now I'll get to my knowledge. Just one point, which is, do you find it rather interesting that Kazan's film is based upon standing up against uh, racism or against injustice? And then he is most renowned for naming names before Huac. Well, to be fair, he has always thought lesser of this film, as I mentioned in the Did You Know section. I know. I, I, I have very conflicting views over Kazan from just that era and what took place. And I've done a lot of studying of the blacklists and what took place with in Hollywood and have uh, I, I hold several individuals in some level of disdain and Kazan is on that list. Well, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but we are discussing his other best picture and best director winning film two weeks from now in On the Waterfront. So we'll have more to discuss during that episode. As far as for novelty, I think it's daring, not in its portrayal of Phil Green's growing indignation, but rather the journey we go on with Kathy that I've mentioned before as the stand-in for the audience and the sympathy we have for our understanding of the problem and the solution to how things actually change in America. Despite that, I agree that this became a little bit dated on the pure merits because most people don't think of anti-Semitism as front and center when they think of racism, and I don't know what the application would be today because it's not as front and center as it used to be. And as such, I think if you change the story a little bit, maybe updated it to be more inclusive, that it would have a better application, something closer to a Black Like Me from 1964. That being said, I still think it's daring for its time, even though I think some of the critics didn't necessarily agree so I'll go with a nine here for novelty. I went with a little higher. I really thought this was, uh, I, I try to think of something that came anywhere close. And the only, only reason I gave it a little bit down is because I think there was some aspects of looking at some of this subject before, but not, it's it's hard to say. I mean, I, I tried to find a film or thought of a film that was on point to that extent, but... Even Glenn or Glenda came out after this. Yeah, well, what can I say? I'm waiting for your uh, review, uh, which I will enjoy tremendously. So what you're saying is, is 1916's follow-up to The Birth of a Nation with Intolerance by D.W. Griffith wasn't a great harbinger of this film? <laughs> uh, no, no, I, I uh, think not, but oh well, what can I say? Anyway, I went with a 9.5 for, uh, for novelty because I think it was about as novel as you're going to get 
it wasn't completely novel because it, it went to a or to a level of racism that is common and embedded and more of a gentleman's agreement while failing to acknowledge the elephant in the room, which was we had a whole section of society that was completely legally segregated. So that's a 9.25 average between us. And I really tried to draw some compare and contrast with another movie we've discussed earlier this year in Do the Right Thing, because I think that movie was a little bit more audacious and ahead of its time, as opposed to this one was kind of of its time, but had a certain understanding and gentleness about it that made it more palatable in the moment comparative to that film. So while one, I think, gets better classicness and novelty for being daring, this one I don't think quite lives up to that level. And so that's where I came in just a little bit below that, thinking of how these movies relate to each other, their time and place, and the rest of it. Even though you've quite clearly made the argument you don't like to do that in the last few weeks. Classicness. Now, I proposed somewhat that a agelessness be added in as a potential criteria for this. But let me ask a similar question that we did the other night as discussing kind of the premise of the film. Do you have difficulty with Gregory Peck playing Jewish for a news piece? No. I mean, he's supposed to be a Gentile playing or posing as a Jew. Why Why would that be a problem? I, I, I guess I don't understand that. All right. Again, I present it from the standpoint of the recent backlash toward Bradley Cooper playing the Jewish producer Leonard Bernstein in the upcoming biopic. With certain marginalized groups, whether it's better for somebody to step into those shoes or if it's something that we need to be more representative about. Obviously, Bradley Cooper being white can pass for Jewish a lot easier than even with heavy prosthetics, I might add. But then he can for going in blackface to try and portray oh, yeah. like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Or for that matter, when we had that, I, albeit I would say funny and Academy Award nominated Robert Downey Jr. performance in Tropic Thunder, where he's trying to play a black man. Yes. Uh, or for the cringeworthy uh, film Breakfast at Tiffany, where Mickey Rooney is playing a Japanese-American or a Japanese immigrant. Was it Japanese? I wasn't yes. sure which Asian nationality. It was Japanese. And uh, it, it's just you watch it now and you just cringe. Well, we'll eventually get to that film. It is so over the top. Wow. Yeah. I know it's been one of the seminal point twos for Hollywood racism for a long time. Regardless, I'll ask a couple of other follow-ups to that central question, because I understand why people would have a problem with it. I don't personally, because I do think it presents a different perspective. If we were just to focus on a first-person Jewish point of view, I don't think it has the relatability factor for the audience, other than we're all human, and thus this is this person's struggle, but I think stepping into the shoes and saying, okay, this was 
what could happen to me if I were that person has a little bit different relatability than if it were just directly that first person point of view. Does the racism of the movie still have application? I think we both answered that as a resounding yes. Are these things still things we're experiencing or have they taken different forms? I think that's still accurate. And so for me, while this doesn't hit home as the all-encompassing best thing I've ever seen on racism and doesn't encounter all of the arguments that we're currently presented and dealing with, it's still pretty good for a movie that is 75 years old this year. So with that, I will bump it up from my standard seven, which is pretty neutral as far as classicness. I didn't find anything particularly cringeworthy other than a few of the racial slurs are ones that I've kind of heard of, but seem like I, I didn't even know what he meant by, is it Sheeny? That's yes. uh, that term outside of this film. I've never even heard. And if I wasn't a Tottenham Hotspur fan, I wouldn't even know what the term Yid was. <laughs> I mean, th- that dates it a little bit, but uh, I went with an 8.5. The only thing that I could find a, that would reduce its classicness, because you could show this film today, and there is still anti-Semitism. I don't think it's nearly as significant as it once was. I think there's still larger levels of racism towards blacks, Asians, and uh, Hispanics. Not to to minimize or say anything. I just think maybe it's just my perception that it's not quite... So I went with a 9.5 for classicness because the particular one or aspect uh, was not the uh, elephant necessarily in the room. So that's a 9 average between us. Rewatchability, for me, this is another one of those important movies that you return to every so often. And I really don't have a problem occasionally returning to this. It's not going to be on like a favorites list or like the most seminal movies that you should probably watch once a year, but I'll give it a solid seven with where I'm sitting now. Well, that's about where I am with most films that should be rewatched periodically. And I went with a seven for the same reason, which is when I'm trying to introduce different people to films and they ask me, you know, what I should watch or what you think is an important film this is one that I think should be on the list. And so to that extent, it's something I'm going to recommend So and would rewatch with them. So that's a seven to me on the way that we're scoring these. Well, that makes the math very easy. Audience score for this one, we had a 73% for Google users, a 78% for Rotten Tomato users for a 7.55 overall. So to recap the categories, we had a 3.5 average for Legacy, 8.25 for Impact Significance, for novelty, a 9 for classicness, 7 for rewatchability, and a 7.55 for audience score, giving us a final total of 44.55. And that would currently place it on the list. Just ahead of Bull Durham by one hundredth of a point, and just below Pillow Talk. Okay. Interesting company, to say the least. Yes, it is. So do you have any other remaining questions outside of the ones that you and I've already discussed? I don't. 
I do not. Okay, any remaining thoughts for the week? No, uh, not really. Um, I did not even think of the fact that we would be doing back-to-back Kazan films when I picked these. It's just I always have liked On the Waterfront, so that's why I picked it. I hadn't seen it in a few years, and so I'm looking forward to watching it again. Well, that's not going to be for a couple of weeks. Obviously, we have Amadeus next week, and uh, more on that in a second. But yeah, I think we'll have plenty to discuss as far as him and that movie and what it has to say at large with corruption in, I guess, systems and government overall. So that'll do it again for us this week. Thank you for listening. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special? Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be continuing our month of Best Picture winners with a musical biopic from the 1980s. From 1984, it's Amadeus, directed by Milos Forman, written by Peter Schaefer, starring F. Murray Abraham, Tom Hulse, and Elizabeth Barrage. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com to sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at gmodepodcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 